as some other scriptures, especially with Jesus, of looking at suffering and kind of how we view suffering. Um, I know this has been something uh, that I've wrestled with, and I'm, I'm sure anyone who is human has wrestled with um, in suffering and just wanting to hear more from you all and having that discussion today. So we're just going to be extending our discussion of Job and where is God in suffering. So what have we noticed as we've gone through Job and we've We've seen his response. We've seen his friends and their response. We've seen God's response to Job. What are the key movements and attributes of Job? So what have you noticed? What have you noticed about Job? So why don't we try this? So turn to your neighbor. And then share with your neighbor what you've noticed about Job and his movements and his attributes as he's gone through this in this story. And if you don't have a neighbor, just turn around and find find a little group to discuss with. Yeah, 
he comes to God really kind of first. And there's no problem. He's completely opening himself up. Yeah. Within himself, but also he never doubts the existence of God throughout that. He just wonders where it is. Yeah. And that's what he kind of took him to really awesome. He still knows his name, he's just not too aware. Yeah. That's good. Kind of that searching in the dark. Mm-hmm. But I hear you name like that vulnerability of like that vulnerability before God, of not of knowing God's there, but not knowing where he is, yeah. and just that search for him. Oh, good. Anything else you notice? It's being transparent and honest. You know, mm-hmm. and feeling free to, to share how upset you are. You know, that this this isn't you know this isn't a right in your eyes. And yet, staying faithful and not cursing God and you know and leaving him. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's good. Let's see another hand. Anyone else like to share? Okay, let's go ahead to the second one. Uh, what lies would have been easy for Job to believe while he was suffering? So what lies would have been really easy for Job to believe? It's kind of a little asterisk there of like, you know, think of some of the things his friend said. You know, what are some of the lies that he could have he could have taken on in that? Maybe he deserved it. Yeah. Maybe he deserved what was being done to him and he was being punished. Yeah. But there's some sort of causality in something like Mm-hmm. Just directly whatever his actions would look before they would Yeah. That's it. There's some kind of causality. I'll add in some of like our language of like God's trying to teach me something. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a wisdom component, but there's also like I feel like there's that's misused a lot. For shame for shame and guilt and and all those pieces. So, yeah. So that lie of like I've done something wrong and being punished. Yeah, those are good. Anything else you can think of? Which is the easiest uh, untruth to believe that it was somebody like Satan giving him a hard time, or somebody like God allowing this to happen? Are they both true or not true? Well, and I think that's the tension, right? You know, the allowing and the and Satan doing these things and kind of seeing that behind the scenes. And I think from Job's perspective, you know, he's asking that question. But the lie that he could internalize is like, I've done something wrong. You hear it from his friends. You know, that piece of it. And he stayed honest and true to what he was, what he knew about himself. Yeah, that's a good question. Related to that, another lie he could have made is just that God's love is not steadfast. Right. That God stopped loving and stopped loving. Yeah, that's exactly right. That he's no longer loved, he's no longer, he's been cast out. Yeah, all of those things. So good. And so that ties into us of like when we're suffering, what are some of the lies that we believe? What are some of the lies we believe when we're suffering? What's the same, like, upside down, everything happens for a reason, right? So, um, which there's a really great greeting card company which has that for cancer. It says, let me be the first person to punch that, them in the face. Right. right. So sorry. Yeah. But yeah, you, you still, at least for me, I wind up thinking back through a handful of things that happened right before that. Yeah. And then you have to wonder, I mean, the nice thing about things that's, complicated as cancer, you can't find that 
But in other suffering moments, there are there's times where you could have you had choices prior to whatever the awful thing is. Um, if you're not careful, you know that you can sort of idolize those choices. Mm, yeah, I like how you said that. Like idolize those choices. And, and part of that's like trying to grasp and gain that control, right? Of like, oh, if I could control that, then this would not be. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And I love how you brought up everything happens for a reason. And so we'll talk about this. I have a quote from, there's a really great book. I think um, Becky's mentioned it before. It's Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved by Kate Bowler. And so it's, it's great. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that too, because it is. It's one of those things of, that sounds really holy until we wield it with somebody who's suffering and then it's also holy. The hard part is there's sometimes no reason for things that happen. Yeah, and that's, that's it. Like, in some communities have more experience with that than others. Yeah. Um, I was sort of, I wound up thinking, reflecting on them. Doesn't show up in Orthodox Judaism very often. Doesn't show up in Black Church very awesome, often. Yeah. Because they have a long lived experience of awful things happening for no reason. Like, yeah. no, they don't. They have more experience with unjust, yeah. injustice than I think sometimes. Uh, yeah. No, I'm so glad you brought that up to you because that's what we'll talk about too, like our perception and our expectations and and how that plays into it. Even with Western culture and our culture in particular, of like we don't expect suffering, so it's an anomaly. Whereas other cultures endure and, and experience a lot of suffering, they expect it. It's kind of part of it. That's it. And it, it makes you feel better because it kind of puts order and control back in your world. Right. And then you can kind of hand that off. Yeah, that's great noticing. That's really great noticing. Thank you all. That's great. So just noticing those shifts and those movements. And so before we go in, I was going to start with this, and I like that we've actually started this. Um, let's just go ahead and do um, close your eyes and take some deep breaths and just kind of recenter. But I want to add a little something to that this morning of just a connection point with Jesus. Because as we suffer, as we as we go along in this life, that that, that is our stability, our anchor. So go ahead and take some deep breaths. And, um, and just ask God to bring up a joyful memory. Just kind of go with whatever comes up. Maybe something you haven't thought about in a long time. And just think about that joyful memory. Think about the feelings that you had in that memory. Pay attention to your senses. What does it smell like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And then when you're settled into that memory, um, in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says he is with us always, even until the end of the age. And so we know that Jesus has always been with us. And so just ask Jesus to show you where he was in that joyful memory.
then as you see Jesus in that joyful memory, just notice how he is enjoying that moment with you. If there's anything you want to ask him or say to him, feel free to do that. We're so grateful for how you are with us in our joy and our pain. Lord, we're grateful that you loved us so much and that you chose to come and suffer with us and leave us alone. And Lord, I just pray that whatever it is you have for each person in here today, Lord, with that, that may it be so that they will know more of themselves as your beloved child. And fill that deeply in your spirit for. And all these things we are grateful. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So what are some things that keep us from suffering well? Like when you think about when you're suffering, there's suffering that we have to go through, you know, is that's just part of life and lived experience. It's part of, as scripture is really clear, when I was looking up scriptures about suffering, it's like it is abundant. Like it is everywhere. It was hard to just narrow down a piece of it. And so we, part of this life is suffering. And then there are those things that we, we that amplify our suffering. And so when you think about those things, that make your suffering worse or keep us from suffering well, what what are some of those things that come to mind? I think just like a woe is me kind of attitude. Yeah, so yeah, so kind of that self pity. Yeah. How woe is me. Feeling like you should be over it by now. Yes. Feeling like you should be over it by now. That it means that you're not faithful enough or grateful enough or Yes. Yes. Then it's like a judgment on your spirituality or your spiritual health if you're not past it or over it. Yes. Very good. Well, a lot of times when you're suffering, your mental health isn't really good. So it's one yeah. thing to talk about suffering now and how your reaction should be to it when yeah. you're going through it. And it's another thing when you're depressed thinking yeah. about it. And what, what should I be like? Right. So I know I'm dying here. Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard people describe that almost as like somebody like standing on their throat, like they just can't get a breath, and you can't see past. Yeah. I listened to uh, country music last night, John Prime, <laughs> who s- described a hole in his arm that he filled up with money. Mm-hmm. He couldn't put enough money in that hole. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you said it. So it's almost like trying to fill that hole or fill that pain with something else. And so you see that with money, you see that with power, you see that with addictions, you see all of that, like trying to fortify those wounds and those holes. Yeah, that's really good. I think that there's a privacy, like sometimes you think I'm the only person who feels like this. Yes. And 
And then also, I don't have the vocabulary to talk about it. Even if I wanted to, I don't have the right words to say for it. And yeah. so when we don't, and then it just makes it seem you're, you're stuck there longer. Yes. That's it. Yeah, that isolation piece. And that, and I like how you said, too, that we don't have the words to talk about it. And there may have even been those times, like, when you tried to talk about it, and then there was shame or pushback. And kind of what Becky talked about, of like, oh, if I was more spiritual or if I was a better Christian, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel this or I'd be over it by now. Those different pieces. And, and just naming that, of, like, that vulnerability it is to bring that suffering and bring that pain to other people. I have a little book. It was on, I think it was on a book I don't know. It's a little one, and I can't remember the name. It's like the Dictionary of Unspeakable Sorrows or something like that. It's just a bunch of made-up words yeah. for not only sorrowful things, but the premise of it is that for language to evolve, like the vernacular of people, common speech is how languages, words get added to the dictionary or whatever. Yeah. But because there's such a resistance to talk about emotional things, especially negative ones, then mm-hmm. sad is like all we have, and that's no good. But that's yeah. encompass everything. So this person has compiled these, you know, they're made up words, but kind of gives you a language to talk about. It's really one of the, like that. That's so good. It's brilliant. It's like uh-huh. half of what I got from the therapy I did was words to describe. Like nothing changed. I just knew right. like what I was noticing and had vocabulary for the noticing. The woman that was most helpful to me is actually a published poet, so she's particularly very good with words and like nuanced, shaded, and phrases. Like, it makes the world a difference. But also, American language is very generalized. That's why we always say we have all these phrases that are like, yeah, yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, like all that is there. A friend of mine was training uh, at school in Britain, and it was like, British English is just so much more precise than American English. Like, they, you know, it's like the, in, the, Eskimos in the snow, but like we have 25 words for snow because we've seen a lot of snow. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you're saying, well, I'm happy you're sad because we have not seen or recognized very much emotion. Yeah. No, that's so good. And even like um, we we all are spiritual directors, and so so much of spiritual direction is helping. One of the the definitions is helping people put their soul into speech. And so it is just that freeing part of being able to verbalize in a safe space those really hard things and try to get those out. There's even a trans, uh, Mr. Rogers had a great uh, quote that's whatever is mentionable is manageable. And so that when we hold it inside, it gets bigger and bigger. And that isolation piece is so important. Um, there was a story that came to mind when I was driving this morning. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a really tiny town in, a, in Kentucky, New Concord, Kentucky. So it was outside of Murray, which is not even a big city. Um, and, and so it was a really rural community, and it was very idyllic, you know, we rode our bikes and visited all the neighbors, you know, as kids, and there was a lot of elderly people in our neighborhood, and they were so sweet to us, and brought us in, and let us come in their homes, and there was one couple in particular that had, in that area, it's, it's just not, everybody's kind of on the same socioeconomic level, there's not a lot of, you know, real wealthy people or real poor people, it's, it's pretty much just everybody's the same, and and there was this one house in our neighborhood that was very, to me as a kid, it was like a mansion. You know, it was like this beautiful house. And this couple from Pennsylvania retired and moved into this house. And they were very sweet people. And we, we loved them. Um, and very tragically, he passed away in the middle of the night one night, very unexpectedly. And his wife kind of dealt with that grief by, by withdrawing. So there was this, 
this withdrawing piece that she did and we would go to check on her and she would let us in at first but then she would stop answering her door and we knew that she was there and we found out many years later because um, this went on for several years that um, she was a hoarder and so she was ordering all of these things and so she was filling all of these big rooms of her house and then she was boxing herself in so as she filled up these rooms she started moving more toward the center and so I won't go into all the graphic details but she couldn't get to her bathrooms any longer and so at the end of her life she was in her foyer by the door and everything else was trash and she had boxed herself into this little space and she actually died of a staph infection um, from not being able to move and so and going into that there were these beautiful oriental rugs that were ruined you know and all these these different pieces and I thought that's that's really a graphic image of what happens in grief when we don't let other people in, and and so it's your your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and your freedom lessens and lessens and lessens, and and so I love how you said of like being vulnerable and letting people into that space is so hard, and then it's so important. Of we've um, talked about earlier of like your emotional range. I love how you gave this words of like, even our right and left brain, like our, um, our right brain is more holistic and connected, and then our left, our left side is more language, and so when we can take those ideas, concepts, and connectedness and make words out of them, it's very healing. And um, all Brene Brown stuff on vulnerability, of that, that importance of letting people into that, being that safe place for people as we move through suffering is so important. So isolation makes it worse. Not being able to talk about it makes it worse. Holding yourself off and just putting that away and not locking yourself away um, numbs you from all the joy as well as all of the pain. And so as we walk through that. Um, I love the, the verse in James that I think it's really misused. And so I felt like I needed to redeem it because I know this was one of those things that, that really kind of hit me and made me feel uber non-spiritual when I was going through hard things because um, I was like I do not feel joy and I know I'm supposed to and this is not what I'm feeling right now um, and when I and just a little caveat on that I remember uh, when I was 16 my dad was diagnosed with cancer and I remember people in my church and we were a very tough community as a farming community and farmers are tough and that was that was a very important value in that community was that you were tough and so I remember as a 16-year-old, uh, people in our church that I love dearly, that are wonderful people, pulling me aside and holding my shoulders and saying, you've got to be strong, you've got to carry your family, you've got to take care of all this stuff. And that put a horrible burden on a 16-year-old. And so that whole putting that front out there is the opposite of joy. And so I think with this verse to me, and I'll read it, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, Consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And to me now, like instead of this, okay, I've got to be joyful in this horrible thing that I'm going through. It's one of those things of when I've watched people who have great maturity, when I watch people who are um, really anchored and full of love, that those are people usually who have suffered a great deal. Um, I used to work with four retired superintendents 
that worked in urban districts. I used to joke, and it was true, that they could dismantle a nuclear bomb and tell jokes the whole time and never break a sweat because they had been through so much stuff that they understood, they understood elements of God that I did not yet understand. And so when I look at this, I see that faith, if you substitute faith for trust, which is a valid exchange of words, that when you go through hard things, you are building that trust muscle with God. And that doesn't make it uh, less painful. It doesn't mean that be less honest. It doesn't mean you have to put on a fake front and, and project something. But it's, it's that promise of there is joy. Like joy has not left the building. Joy is still there. And that the more you go into these things with God and you realize more of who God is, that there is more joy in your life and more freedom because you're not bound up by some of the structures and some of the things that we rely on that aren't true, that are imaginary anyway. Does that make sense? So that kind of redeemed that verse for me. And so uh, just knowledge of God, trust in who God is, and then also trusting, and this was a hard one for me, is trusting who we are, who we are with God, that we are God's beloved children. And Romans 8 is really good with that. Of we are God's beloved children. And as much as if you have children or you have of people that you love dearly, know that God loves us millions of times more than that love that you have for someone else. And so that helps to kind of combat some of those things of why is God doing this to me and what's he doing to teach me a lesson. And I think... Becky covered this really well with that God image piece of how do we see God? Do we see God as somebody who is with us, who loves us, who suffers with us? Or do we see God as the one doing, this, doing this, the, uh, the torture, for lack of a better word? And that's not. We see with Jesus that Jesus actually came to suffer with us. And then I love that you brought up like the Western view, so cultural, uh, cultural views of suffering. This has been something that I've learned that I've loved. Uh, not loved, that's probably a bad way of saying it, but just noticing of like how my cultural framework affects how I experience God and I experience suffering and how I see that, you know, that I have uh, friends around the world that they are shocked, that we're shocked by suffering, uh, that that's just very much a part of their experience. Um, I remember reading something from a, uh, that was written by somebody in a Chinese church that they were afraid that the suffering would relent because they didn't want their children to become... Um, lacks and not experience all the things that they experienced with God without the suffering. And that, that kind of blew my mind a little bit, where I was like, I can't imagine not wanting the suffering. And not that they wanted suffering to continue, but they were, they were concerned about the health of the church if that oppression was lifted. And so I was a little disoriented by that because of my cultural worldview world of like, oh, I, I don't think about suffering just being a part of the human experience. Um, so Jesus and suffering, as, as we think about Jesus, and rightly so, we focus a lot on the crucifixion, but Jesus lived a fully human life, and as such, he had lots of different experiences along the way up to the cross that sometimes we overlook. And to be honest, like we can't really relate, or at least I can't relate to a crucifixion, but I can relate to uh, Jesus going back to his home synagogue and, and reading scripture and declaring who he was and people being so angry, the very people who nurtured him and loved him and, and brought him up and them being so angry because he's, he's saying something, 
that they believe is not right, that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And so I, I, I resonate with some of those things, or the, the pieces of him being misunderstood. Of when he was telling his, his disciples, his closest friends, of like, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. And they're like, yeah, 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 but who's going to be first? Like, am I going to get to be your vice president, or is this guy going to get to me? And so, and he's like, oh, you know, why, why can't you get this? I'm speaking this plain. And uh, I even had, when I was reading one time, and this is not, this is according to Paige, so hold that as you will. But when I was reading about the transfiguration, I was like, I wonder if an element of Elijah and Moses showing up right before Jesus went to Jerusalem was just so he could have some people who got it, who got what it felt like to not be understood and to have people against you and, and to know what you were going to go through. And I was like, both of them got that. And so I was like, that that was a sweet fellowship and a sweet community. And so, um, <coughs> what are some things that you think about? I mean, start if you start with the beginning of Jesus' life. When he was born. I mean, immediately, Herod wanted to kill him. And so they had to be refugees and flee to Egypt. And so, just thinking back through Jesus' life, what are some things that you notice about ways that he suffered? that maybe you have not thought about before. I'm guessing that lots of people thought he was illegitimate. Yes. They have called him names, the other kids or Right. I'm sure that probably they did. Yeah. Small towns have a long memory. And so <laughs> Yes. I even heard someone say that he was always he was always eating with the prostitutes and the sinners, right? And I, and I wondered if that's not part of the community that they kept as he grew up because his mother would have been cast out from proper society that existed at that time. Well, and he came from a, a non-affluent family. Yes. No resources that was there. Right. So some, some yeah. Yeah. Non-affluent family, non-affluent area. Nazareth was non-affluent. They said it could have been like a stonemason that could have been what got translated as carpenter, which was dirty, hard work. Yeah, not no privilege in that at all. And what were you going to say? Uh, he did not have an earthly father. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that Joseph, that Joseph died at some point before his crucifixion, and so he went through the loss of a father. Probably. Uh, a lot of times you can take the stuff that's gone to you, but how about the stuff that's gone to his mother? Yeah. Yeah. And he would have known the pain of that. And also, too, to kind of piggyback on that, that when he first started preaching, his mom, his mother, and his brothers, they sent word to him of like, hey, hey, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? Come home and we'll take care of you. And so, you know, even his close family... I didn't believe he was who he said he was. And so that whole disorientation around that, that's good. I think loving people just opens you up to suffering. It does. And so I just wonder, like, I, I'm thinking of the passage of the rich young woman where he comes to him and says, Jesus looked at him with love. Yeah. I, I wonder about Jesus' suffering if you have something so much better for you and you can have it. Yeah. I can see where this is going to go for you. 
and it hurts me, and, and it could be different. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. And even like when you talked about money, you know, that was his crutch, and he wanted to free him of that. And there was that pain. Oh, that's good. That's good. Especially when we look at people that we have in our lives who have things that are, are binding them up, whether it's addictions or money or power or control, and, and we want so much more for them. You see that, you know, there's that element where Jesus is with you in that. So good. Yeah. Jesus wept. Yeah. I love that. And there's a piece of that too that um, I was reading. It talked about that he felt deep anger. It was deep anger at death. You know, of like seeing these people that he loved. This is one of the interpretations of it that they were suffering. And he saw the brokenness and the pain and the suffering around death, and he hated that. There was because this is not the way he wanted it to be. This was not how he had he made the earth to work, and he saw the pain that came with that. And there was just that deep resonance, that deep empathy with that, and deep suffering with that. It's good. Another thing you can relate to is betrayal. Yeah. 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 No, and that deep betrayal and knowing, you know, that he was going to betray him. And even, even as they walked along, like he knew, you know, he saw the signs and what he was doing. Yeah. Oh, that deep betrayal. That's good. That's good. He also kind of lived under a constant threat, right? Every time he pulled up and he had to sneak away, and he was always sort of in the background. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so that constant fear and stress of, of that. Yeah. The Son of Man has no place to lay his hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows who he is, yes. where he came from, but he has no heart. Yeah. He has, he's wandered. Yes. Purposefully. But yet he feels his own. <coughs> Yes. Yeah, of that whole not having that financial security or that 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 piece of it. Yeah. Of that sense of homelessness, that sense of that movement. Yeah. Mm. That's good. And that can apply to so many different levels. Spiritually, physically, emotionally. Did you have something? Oh, I was just thinking, you know, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones that should have recognized the Messiah were the ones that were so haughty and weren't as big as enemies. You know, and and just (coughs) as the the creator of the universe, you know, to to know the power you wield in these these (laughs) insects, if you will, you know, I mean, the way that they were, you know, the, the power that you have or that you could wield over them and yet being humble I mean, I just think of me dealing with, with that. I, I would just lose it, you know? Um, so it was yeah. that constant tension. That's good. Well, and there was nobody in Jesus' life that he did not disappoint. Because they all had expectations <coughs> for him that were not in alignment with what he was going to do. Yes? 
uh, there's also Peter's betrayal yes. in building on what Roger said. Uh, he knew ahead of time that he would be betrayed when he brought the people in, like Judas and Peter. Mm -hmm. He already knew that that was going to happen, but he still loved them and stayed the course. Yeah. You know, there's also that interpretation, too, of when he's in the garden, if you look at how he prays, he's praying for his friends. Because he has that sense of knowing, well, they're going to have to suffer, like they're going to have to go through, you know, how Peter's going to be sifted. And there's that longing and that, that grief for them, I think, that adds to his agony. That was a shift for me, too, to recognize, like, okay, it was kind of what you said before, too, like, it's one thing for something to happen to you, it's another to experience really horrible things happen to people that you love and in light of that other things you notice about Jesus's life that just really resonate with your everyday there's almost people that follow him mm -hmm. but they only follow him to get it but they can get it mm -hmm. and the miracles I think that sometimes <coughs> you don't always see it as suffering but to mm -hmm. be in a group of people that they just don't get yeah. you or get yeah. So he knew what it felt like to be used. And then abandoned. And then abandoned, yes. And not only that, but then the same people would turn and chant crucify him. Yeah. Oop. All of that. So good. Anything else you can think of? Did he dream of and maybe it's just the romantic in my spirit. Like, did he dream of being married and having children and someone that got him and loved him? Because that was obviously not part of his plan. But did he want that because he was fully human? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Yeah, just those natural, those natural desires as humans. To want to do that, and then understand maybe that's not where he's going to go. You know that this is, God has called him to something else. And when we talked yeah. about him not having a home, right? And that's a big part of that, and not not having the normal life. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> of that loneliness that would come with that. Oh yeah, that's really good. Anything else you can think of? I think it gives me a lot of peace the fact that you see Jesus. He's going in, no matter how ugly it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. No matter how bad it is, he's really going. Yeah. Yeah. And he sees the people. Mm -hmm. He sees who they are. And then noticing, too, like the religious leaders and the reputation that he had because of that. That he was not understood or affirmed, you know, by the Pharisees and scribes and the things they said about him. You know, they called him a, a drunkard, they called him a glutton. You know, all of these things that they were hurling at him because of the movie he chose to spend time with. Yeah. These are great. There's a prayer um, that, that I learned in spiritual direction training of, you know, when you're suffering and when you're hurting. And it can be, and I think we always want to kind of monetize those of like little things or big things. But the truth of it is, whenever you're experiencing it, it's what you're experiencing. And so I'm not trying to put it on a trajectory. 
but when you're noticing that, like my, my kind of go-to thing is loneliness. Like I will, I will tend toward feeling lonely. And so when I do that, I will ask Jesus, Jesus, show me a time in your life when you felt like I'm feeling. And there is something really sweet about that. And usually he'll bring up something uh, that I haven't thought about before. And when I read it in scripture, I'm like, yeah, I see that. You know, that loneliness. That loneliness. Um, one that comes up a lot of times is when he asked his really close friends to come with him, you know, into the garden when he was suffering and they fell asleep. And so I'm like, you know, and you see his frustration, but then you see his compassion. Um, but just noticing those things and like really Jesus felt the full human gamut and there's something really precious and sweet that he would come and suffer all the things, not just the crucifixion, of just what it means to be human, what it means to be alive in that. And I even think that Jesus had like a really tough family, you know, of like you see that in some of his brothers that um that he just there was a lot of stuff going on there. Like it was not idyllic, I don't think. I think there was a lot of a lot of maybe some comparison, maybe there was some um, competition. Um, none of them believed really in him until after after he, he died and was resurrected. And so you just you see that even in his own family he did not have uh, he wasn't completely understood. And that gives me a lot of peace. I'm like, okay, so we are, we're not expected to have these perfect things that Jesus Jesus gets that. Um, and there's lots of different things, like Romans 5, 1 through 5. I love how it talks about the journey of suffering. We talked about that a little bit. Of, of Suffering is one of those pieces, and there's there's a lot of mystery to it. I thought I, when I was doing this or preparing for this class, I was like, uh, I don't know. Like, this is, this is I'm not qualified to do this <laughs> because I don't have solid answers on it. And nobody does. It's one of those things that's experiential, and there's a, there's a piece to that. And we just have a couple more minutes, um, but I did want to do his uh, one quote at the end. It talks about John. He was like, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so that there is this, whatever you're going through, Jesus is with you in it. And there's all the things, you know, like there's nothing that's simple. There's a lot of mystery. And, and digging in deep to who God is, who you are, and then the things that you just can't understand. Um, I did want to give this quote. So the self-empathy versus self-pity. And I think that is such a huge distinction of like having self-empathy. And we'll walk through some of that versus self-pity. You see that how the two roads diverge. So self-empathy, you're, you're taking care of yourself, you're naming your needs, you're, you're noticing what you're feeling and asking God to meet you in that need. Self-pity is a different route that leads to bitterness and disconnection and isolation because you're like, woe is me, why am I doing this, I don't deserve this. And it's a very different direction than we see from Job and from how Jesus lived. And so just noticing that when we're going through suffering, a lot of times we'll notice what we call disordered attachments, things that we are depending on instead of God. And, and I want to be really careful with that because I think sometimes that falls under our hyper-spiritualization of what is God teaching me. And it's not that as much as it is of like, okay, I, I thought I had more control than I really did. And I love how Kate Bowler talks about it. And if you don't know the background of Kate Bowler, she's a divinity professor at, um, at Duke uh, at Duke Seminary, and her whole background was researching um, prosperity gospel. 
And so, and we all are like, no, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. And we've talked about this before, except when it comes to suffering. And then we kind of have a little bit of that in us, right? Of like, oh, but if I do good things and I get good things, and then if God breaks that transaction, then what's happened? And so she was 35. She had just gotten this uh, great position. She'd done all this work. Everything in her life had been dedicated toward God, and she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And so that was like... And she was like, I researched prosperity gospel. I didn't think I had any of that in me. And then she said, and then a lot of stuff started coming out. And then she started noticing how people related to her and her suffering and some of the things they would say. And so then she wrote this beautiful book of everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. And one of the quotes that I love is control is a drug and we are all hooked. Whether or not we believe in the prosperity gospel's assurance that we can master the future with our words and our actions. And so... There is that element of control that, um, that sometimes we cling to that can be that disordered attachment. Um, other pieces of that that can just like, th- things that bind us up, as I was talking before, that really um, increase our suffering, that cause isolation and, and pulling us into almost like that four-year of like we're living this tiny life, is entitlement and then also unforgiveness. And so um, noticing, you know, do I think that I'm not entitled to this because I've done X, Y, and Z for God? You know, and just noticing, it's kind of that reorientation, that realignment of surrender and connection to God. And then unforgiveness, a lot of times that will really, if we are holding bitterness against someone, and someone who legitimately did something wrong, and I love how um, you brought up with Jesus, that he had legitimate things that were wrong. He was betrayed by multiple people. And I love how he restores Peter. You know, of like there's that beautiful thing of him coming back, and it, it's there's a beautiful reconciliation, forgiveness in that. And so, um, just self-empathy is a Christian spiritual practice, and we'll get to this one day. Uh, but just noticing your needs; these needs are given to us by God, and in offering and holding those needs with God, and asking Him to meet you in very, um, very tangible ways around those needs. And there is some vulnerability in that that we that we go through and so um that will be it for today and then we will let you go and we'll talk more about this later um are there any questions before we leave all right have a great week